Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. All right. I am Chris Meyer, and I get the privilege of uh, bringing the word today. And um, got some great stuff. God is so good. His word is so good. And it's, it's kind of a funny story this morning because I'm preaching about anxiety. And I am experiencing anxiety. And I keep going back and forth between, all right, this is how I'm feeling, but this is what I know. This is what the word says to me. And I have to remind myself of what is true. So I've been doing that like since last night and this morning. And I'm here to tell you that it works. If we stay connected to what's true, that truth affects us. It affects our bodies. It affects how we, how we are in our minds. And so I share that with you just at the outset so that you know that I am preaching this this morning not from the standpoint of a person who uh, has the academics but not any of the experience. So I know what it's like to be a little jittery because I got you this morning. I'm a little jittery. <laughs> so please turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be spending uh, the next two weeks looking at the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite letters from Paul, and this chapter has a bunch of great stuff for us. Even with narrowing the, the scope down to nine verses, there is no way we're going to touch all of the good stuff that's in these first nine verses. But hopefully everybody is going to take home something that they didn't bring with them today. I was trying to think of a, an appropriate title for the sermon uh, for today and for next week, but all I could come up with was uh, you know, cheesy ripoffs of book titles like Crazy Peace or How Then Shall We Pray? And I decided that not, that, that was really not the best way to go. And then I remembered a story uh, from my own family's life. Uh, it's been quite a while now, but when Siri, my oldest daughter, was five years old, she was standing... Uh, Oh, in our living room, and Annie was nearby, and Siri had this look on her face and looked up at Annie and said, at five, what should I be thinking about? <laughs> Those of you who know Siri are probably not terribly surprised. <laughs> um, what should I be thinking about? And so I, I thought, okay, in that same simple spirit, then today's sermon title is, what should we be praying about? And next week, what should we be thinking about? And that'll be a nice little division. We'll go up through uh, verse 7 in uh, Philippians 4 today, and then we'll save verses 8 and 9 for next time. So when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, he was in prison, uh, probably in Rome, about A.D. 62. He had started the church in Philippi about 12 years before. And Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, the church there would have been mostly Gentiles. I would encourage you to read chap Acts chapter 16 because it'll tell you a little bit of background on the church at Philippi and some of Paul's experiences there. Uh, he, he had quite a time, actually. Uh, he was in jail and some fairly miraculous things took place. It's worth a good read. Now, Paul had a close relationship with the church in Philippi. They had supported him in his times of need and as he as much as said that they, he had a very special place in his heart for them. 
Now, I would also encourage you this week, if you don't have enough homework from Acts chapter 16, that you read the book of Philippians. Just sit down and read the whole thing in one fell swoop. It's only four chapters. It doesn't take you that long. But some of what happens when you read one of Paul's letters in one sitting is that you get a real sense of the fact that it is a letter and that there's a real audience of people that he knows and cares about and that he has a theme in what he's trying to present to them or in some cases several themes. And so if you do that this week, you're gonna have a better sense of the context for our sermon today as well as our sermon next week. Now we're gonna jump in at chapter four. Uh, You can tell Paul is wrapping up the letter. He attends to some loose ends. He makes some final exhortations. The second half of the chapter is kind of some final thoughts, thanksgivings, uh, greetings for some people. So he's kind of winding the letter down. But we're gonna camp in the first half of chapter four. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, your word is life to us. It is, it is bread to us. We come this morning and we, we wanna acknowledge that we need you, Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and our minds so that we can receive. Lord, we're coming from all kinds of places this morning. We got all kinds of things going on in our lives. Some of that stuff gets in the way and makes it hard for us to hear from you. So this morning, we just wanna pray that you will override that very natural tendency and that you'd help us to focus and drink deep. Lord, we pray you bring your peace to us this morning and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's, let's read through the first nine verses of Philippians four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, May God bless his word to us this morning. Okay. Verse one, you see the closeness of the relationship that I was talking about earlier. Paul loves these people with all his heart. They are his joy, his crown, and he longs for them. When was the last time you talked like that about anybody? Honestly, <laughs> maybe when you were dating or you were engaged, you said stuff like that, you know, bought a card and your, your wife still has it, right? 
Come on, tell me you sent the card. (laughs) Paul loves these people deeply and he expresses it. He admonishes them to stand firm in the Lord. And this is part of why I'm encouraging you to read the letter in its entirety this week because he is encouraging them, therefore, to stand firm in the Lord. So what's therefore? Well, it's the first three chapters. So it's really worth a read. We don't have time to do it all today. Paul develops themes of Christian growth, humility, seeking to be like Christ and how we relate to one another, unity in the body, valuing the example of leaders who are following God. All of these are really important themes. Now Paul goes on to entreat Euodia and Syntyche to get along with one another and put aside their differences. We're not told what the differences were. I, I for one, am kind of glad that he he didn't detail that because it gives us the ability to apply this to all the stuff that we run into. It was significant enough, whatever it was, that Paul called it out publicly. That's pretty impressive. Paul asks his true companion to help these women, whom he describes as fellow workers for the cause of the gospel and whose names are written in the book of life. Now, we're not told who the true companion is, and there's been a lot of speculation. Some people thought it was Luke. Some people thought maybe it was one of their husbands. Some people thought, and I'm kind of inclined to think that it was probably the, the, one of the bishops in the church, uh, a fellow worker of Paul's. So perhaps we're not told because it doesn't really matter that much. Paul wants them to get along, and apparently their conflict had created some degree of stress in the church. Paul had heard about it. I'm guessing, you know, whoever relayed the information to him was relating the important information about what was going on at Philippi. And he included this information. Yeah, Yodia and Syntyche, you know, they got this thing. This is a great snapshot of how life in the church can be complicated. Even with people who are laboring for the gospel and whose names are written in the book of life. And one could summarize Paul's description of these women as an endorsement of their lives. Like, hey, please help these two get along. They're true believers. Their names are written in the book of life and they have labored alongside me in the gospel. It's a remarkable thing for a male religious leader to have said in the first century. These women were fellow laborers in the gospel. Even people with resumes like this can see things differently and struggle with one another. You can almost imagine that when Paul was talking about humility and serving one another in chapter two, that Yodi and Syntyche would have heard this as being directed at them. Now, you know how this goes. You, you show up at church on a Sunday morning and there you're sitting there and you think you're all safe and secure in your private little world and then the preacher starts talking and you think, oh my gosh, did my family call him up and tell him something? Like, how does this guy have the inside track? And you want to kind of shrink into your seat a little bit? I'm guessing that's how Yodia and Syntyche were reacting to this letter being out, read out loud in the church. In verse three, Paul encourages them to rejoice in the Lord, and he repeats it. Now this is from the guy who was in prison. He also gives them a general exhortation that they should let their reasonableness be known to everyone. 
Now the word for reasonableness can also be translated gentleness or moderation. It's used to describe Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10.1. It's used in James to describe the wisdom from above, James 3.17. And in 1 Timothy 3.3, it's listed as a quality that is required of an elder. Here we are told that this should be something that characterizes us as believers. One commentator has referred to this term as sweet reasonableness. I like that term, sweet reasonableness. Now I don't think this is any accident that the exhortation comes on the heels of addressing the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. How we relate to one another matters a lot. The world is watching how we, how we manage our conflicts, how we speak with one another, and the world is going to interpret and assess the validity of the gospel and the reality of Jesus being the Son of God on the basis of our unity. John, uh, Jesus says this in his priestly prayer in John 17. That takes our unity, our sweet reasonableness with one another as a body of Christ to a whole other level. This isn't just about being nice people. It's not just about getting along. It's about validating the gospel to the world who is watching the church. So may we all take some of that sweet reasonableness with us in in our discourse, in our dialogue, in our relationships with one another. Moving on to verse six. Paul says we should not be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. Anyone got any anxiety this year? A <laughs> little bit, little bit? It's been a crazy year, and all of the stuff that's happened to us this year has happened to us on top of all of the other stuff that already was happening to us. You know, life dishes out a bunch of stuff and we all still have that stuff, and now we've got this other stuff on top of that stuff. So it's kind of a double stuff, I guess. <sighs> yeah, I really said that, sorry. <laughs> Paul says that if we pray like this, instead of being anxious, that the peace of God is gonna guard our hearts and our minds. Now some of you may experience a kind of anxiety that is more of a medical condition uh, than it is a faith issue. Some people are prone to intense anxiety that is more of a biological problem, either due to genetics or perhaps trauma. And for those of you for whom this is true, I don't want you to hear this sermon this morning and conclude that if you just had more faith, your condition would go away. By all means, take encouragement from what's in these passages today. By all means, be comforted, and by all means, pray for healing. But if God in his wisdom sees fit not to heal your condition, continue with your medical care, and don't feel condemned because you have this particular thorn in the flesh. You know, thorns in the flesh come in a lot of different sizes and shapes. And God saw fit to leave one with Paul and it was for his good. And then once Paul got that, he was, he was happy about it. He said he would rejoice in his weaknesses because when he's weak, then he's strong. 
I, and I, I say that just because I know that there are people out here and people in your families who didn't sign up for what their body does to them. And some of these disorders are not under our voluntary control and are not primarily faith issues. So I just want to say to those of you for whom that fits, take some comfort. By all means, pray. Uh, yeah, but don't, don't walk out of here today thinking that Chris Meyer said that if you just prayed the right way, that your stuff would go poof and everything would be unicorns and rainbows. Okay? Now, anxiety is a funny thing, and there are some practical objections, some logical objections to anxiety. Uh, Mark Twain is uh, reported to have said that he had lived a life full of many troubles, most of which never happened. <laughs> and that is a great illustration of how anxiety works. Um, I often ask the people that I, I'm working with uh, what, their, what their prediction, anxiety prediction uh, batting average is. And, and, and very few of them have anything like a minor league batting average. In fact, I, I'm not sure they'd get out of Little League. They, uh, we predict a lot of bad things in our anxiety. But it's always this forward-looking thing. How, I, I am told that half of the United States is now baking sourdough bread. Anybody baking sourdough bread out there? I have started baking sourdough bread. And uh, it's this real process. I won't bore you with all the details, but you, like, you create this starter. And the, the thing can take weeks to get rolling. And you have to feed it, and you do all this stuff, and it's supposed to do certain things in a certain amount of time, and it has the temperature has to be right, and it's all this fussing around. And so I've gone through this whole process of like, you know, watching my starter and watching the, you know, the volume and the feeding and all the different things and kind of fretting about this and that. Then, oh, then I started baking stuff. Now, I'm not a baker. I've never been a baker. So this wasn't like taking on something that I was familiar with, right? So I, I, I go to the oven, and I get this stuff started, and I put it in, and I sit outside, and I watch through the glass, and I fret. <laughs> Did I prove it long enough? Is the temperature right? Was the stone warmed up long enough? How long should I leave it in? Do I cover, uncover it now, or do I uncover it later? I hope it's not dense. <laughs> so the thing I've noticed is that there is no relationship between the amount of fretting that I do and how the bread actually turns out. The only thing that changes is me. And that's a great thing to keep in mind about anxiety. It will never change your circumstances. It will only change you. But it won't change you in good ways. It sucks the life out of you, kind of sucks the joy out of things. So we're not here to talk about practical objections to anxiety, but we're here to talk mostly about spiritual redirection of anxiety. And so I want to bring our focus back to Philippians because this is, after all, not a self-help sermon, but this is a sermon that is hopefully going to direct us into a closer connection with Jesus this morning. So let's carry on. This promise of peace is fantastic, right? I mean, who, especially at times like this when we are overloaded with stresses, who doesn't want peace? 
I can't tell you how many people I work with who are smoking more dope than they've ever smoked. They are drinking more booze than they have ever drank. They're engaging in more Netflix binges or sometimes binges on worse stuff on the internet because people are looking for relief. They're looking for peace. They are tired of the constant tension but they're looking for things that aren't going to actually solve the problem. We get this promise that if we pray like this, God is going to give us his peace, a peace that passes understanding. And yet, there are so many times when I don't reach for that, when I choose to fret and worry instead of going to prayer. Why is that? I mean, this is like having, you know, those of you guys who work in shops, you know, this is like having the perfect tool for the hard job that you're doing, and it's sitting in there on the bench in the shop, and some guy says, hey, there's this tool in there. It'll, like, man, it'll do that like nothing. And you go, no, 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 I'd, I'd rather just beat my knuckles against this. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. It's ridiculous. And yet, this is kind of what we do. Why don't we go more often to prayer instead of staying anxious. Philip Yancey in his book entitled Prayer Does It Make a Difference says that Christians are almost universally, they almost universally believe that prayer is important but are almost as universally dissatisfied with their prayer experiences. We believe in prayer as Christians. We preach it. It will say it to anybody. You, it'll come up on the Gallup poll surveys. Everybody believes it's important. But almost everybody doesn't feel so good about their prayer life. It's curious, isn't it? We have this great opportunity. We don't take advantage of it as much as we could. Why is that? Well, I, I'm just going to touch on a few things and then I want to get back into uh, verses 7 and 8. We value hard work and initiative and planning for the future. We like to be able to solve our own problems. We admire people who can do that. You guys, when you're sitting around you, or you go over to somebody's house and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that broke the other day. But, uh, you know, I just fired up the forge and I, you know, I, I, I drilled this out and I you know, made some, uh, fabricated this piece and, and you know, then I was able to put it together and I adapted it with this other thing that I got from another leftover project. And yeah, there's this thing. You know, purifies water and it cleans out my septic system and it solves, uh, solve, you know, heats my house, you know. We, we admire this stuff. We admire people who are um, adaptive and ingenious. And sometimes this extends to the point where we don't ask for help or we feel bad if we need help. Or we feel bad if we don't know something and we start using really negative terms like I'm stupid or I've failed or I screwed up. We like being self-reliant. Now on balance, there's a ton of stuff that we have to do in our course of our normal lives, right? If we don't clean the house and go to work and fix stuff, then that stuff doesn't happen. So of course there's this temptation to become self-reliant. But taken too far, I think it robs us of our sense of need and then we don't go to Christ in prayer as much as we could or should. Do you find yourself praying for other people, other people's needs, but not your own? 
That's interesting, isn't it? Why is that? We think other people, it's okay for them to have needs. It's even okay for us to pray for their needs. But we don't pray, pray for our needs? What is so bad about being dependent? What is so bad about admitting that we need Jesus in a ton of different ways? One of the other reasons that we sometimes don't go to prayer as much as we could is time pressure. We got a, we got a bunch of stuff. We got, we got work and home and school and parenting and church and relationships and of course the Netflix binge and you know all this other stuff. And so where do you fit prayer in when you've got a lifestyle that looks like that? Now for a lot of us, the time pressure excuse in the end is kind of an excuse. I mean, I have to, I, honestly, I have to decide how many episodes of the British Baking Show do I need to watch and what is the relative worth of that compared to praying for the things that are on my mind and my heart. So, yeah, okay, I'm busy. However, I really do have time when I think about it. Sometimes we don't go to God as much in prayer because we don't have a correct view of God. We see him as a disinterested being who has kind of fired up the world and now he's letting it spin its way down and the stuff that's going on for us, why would he possibly be concerned about that? And we're not biblical in our picture of God. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. When the author of Hebrews encourages us to come to God, he does so by presenting Jesus as a compassionate high priest, someone who sympathizes with our weaknesses, somebody who put on flesh and walked in our skin and who experienced all the same kind of stuff we did. And part of why God did that was so that when we go to him, we know that he knows. He gets it. He was perfected in his role as our high priest by the things that he suffered, said Hebrews. So he knows what it's like to experience anxiety and grief and trouble. That's the view of God that enables us to come to him with some confidence and to come to him more frequently than perhaps we're inclined to. When you remember that Jesus is that kind of high priest, doesn't that make you want to go to him? Doesn't that make you just want to hang out a little bit more with God when you know that that's how he sees you and that's how he thinks about us? It does for me. One last reason that I'm going to touch on for why we sometimes don't go to prayer as much is the idea that, well, God already knows. So I don't really need to say it because God already knows. And you're right. He does already know. But he still tells us to come. Now why would he do that? It's not that he needs to be informed. It's not that he needs to be reminded. It's that he wants relationship. He wants to be connected to us. I mean, imagine what it would be like if somebody in your family that you love, well, maybe you don't have to imagine. You know the old story about the guy who said, you know, I don't know why my wife keeps want me, wanting me to tell her I love her. I told her the day we got married, I shouldn't think, isn't that good enough? Relationship is ongoing. 
relationship is new, it's fresh day by day. And Jesus wants us coming regularly and bringing our requests regularly because he wants relationship with us. The point of our prayers is relationship experienced. Prayer is an ongoing conversation, it's a recognition of one's presence. Jesus taught us to pray and ask for our daily bread, among other things. This is part of how we experience God in relationship day by day. Philip Yancey says, we do not pray to tell God what he does not know, nor to remind him of what he has forgotten. He already cares for the things we pray about. He has simply been waiting for us to care about them with him. Gonna plug Philip Yancey's book, Prayer Doesn't Make a Difference. Our home group has been studying this book now for over a year, and we can't get enough good stuff out of it. Uh, We still have like, I don't know, a bunch of chapters left, don't we? Yeah, that's what I figured. It's been a great group discussion for us, and it's been a real encouragement for us all in our prayer lives. So, now that we've looked at some reasons why we don't do this, let's look at some more specifics on what Paul is talking about in in verses 7 and 8, or 6 and 7. Let's get that back up. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now there are three words here to describe how we relate to God around our concerns. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Now the first term is general and could be used to describe any of our prayers to God. The second word, supplication, carries the idea of asking for a specific thing. And the last word, thanksgiving, kind of speaks for itself. It describes our our gratitude uh, towards God for what he is doing. I want to look at each one of those in a little bit more detail. I think it's easy to think of prayer as always being requesting of something. You know, what do do we pray for? Or I'll pray for you. I mean, there's almost always this idea of a request connected with it. And the danger of that is that it narrows our concept of prayer down to a list of requests as opposed to something that is more relational. Paul here uses the word, the general word for prayer and a specific word for requests, which tells me he, when he says prayer, he's talking about more than just making requests. Prayer includes talking to God about our experiences, just like the psalmists express their feelings to God. Prayer includes times when we're being still and just knowing that he is God. Martin Luther said, the fewer the words, the better the prayer. That's a little paradoxical, isn't it? Take that out to its furthest extreme, we'll just, we would just sit silent sometimes. Meditating on the scripture and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us is a prayerful experience. So when you think of this passage in Philippians, don't think of it as simply encouraging us to make our requests. It's encouraging us to do that, but not just that. In everything by prayer, Draw near to God. Draw near to the throne of grace. Have times of silence and waiting. Have times of expressing to God just what's going on in your heart. 
the good, the bad, the ugly. Have times of worship. In everything by prayer. That's a bigger term. Supplication speaks for itself. We are making requests. We are bringing our needs to God. The little stuff, the big stuff, the catastrophic stuff, all of it. Sometimes even when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is groaning with us and making those requests to God. God wants to hear these things from us. Jesus taught us to pray this way. If you're inclined to skip this part, if you're the one who prays for everybody else but not for yourself, don't miss this. This is for you. This is a a part of your relationship with Jesus that can grow. By prayer, with supplication, and thanksgiving. Now, this is probably the most challenging part of the verse. Paul is addressing people who had things that they could well be anxious about. The church was going through persecution. Gosh, if you read Acts 16 and what, everything Paul went through when he was there, and Paul was in the middle of his missionary journeys. The poor guy was you know, stoned and beaten with rods and snake bit, shipwrecked, you name it. The guy must have been a, a disaster. The church was suffering. Paul says we should pray and make supplications with thanksgiving. Now, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we are to give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. All right. How does this actually play? I mean, we're not just talking about thanksgiving for lightweight stuff. We're not just talking about thanksgiving for good stuff. He's saying in all circumstances. Man, that's... That's so hard sometimes. John Piper wrote an article once uh, entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. It was all the reasons why he felt, because he, he had cancer. And it was all the, all the things that God was teaching him through his cancer and he, he wanted other people to not miss that. Wow. Man, that's tough. Thank you, God, for my chronic pain. Thank you, God, for my limp. Thank you, God, for my migraines. Thank you, God, for my anxiety disorder. Thank you, God, for my relationship troubles. Wow, this is not how we normally instinctively want to pray about stuff. But he says, all prayer, by all prayer, with supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How does this make any sense whatsoever? Now, this is a whole sermon in itself, but the short answer as to why this Thanksgiving makes sense, even in bad circumstances, is because of what the Bible teaches about how God uses trials in our lives. The Bible is unreservedly positive about trials and troubles. You can't, you can't walk you can't stroll anywhere in the New Testament without running into scriptures that do this. Everywhere you turn, Jesus or Paul or James or Peter or John is talking about the things that trials produce in us. He shapes our character. He produces, it produces endurance. It perfects our faith, prepares us for heaven. God is not insensitive 
to the troubles that we go through, but he wants us to know that he does not waste our pain. He works things out for our good, like it talks about in Romans. He even says that our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving makes sense with this perspective. God is not asleep at the wheel. He did not say oops. He is not disinterested. He is not disengaged. He knows what he's doing. His love and wisdom will dictate what prayers he answers and how he will answer, even if the answer isn't the one we want. We can be thankful that his will is ultimately what is best for us and best for his kingdom. Don't be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now coming to God like this, prayerful, beseeching, thankfully making a request, ushers us into the peace of God. And this peace does not make sense on the face of it. We shouldn't look like everything's under control when everything's out of control. Okay, that doesn't make sense. But God in the equation gives us a different point of view and a larger perspective. Faith gives us the confidence in what God is going to do even when the circumstances would give us no confidence at all. This is a piece that passes understanding and it protects us. It says it will guard your hearts and your minds. How, how does that work? What, how is this going to protect our hearts and our minds? When we have this peace, we are protected from some of the things that are the most debilitating things that we face as human beings. We are protected from the fear of the unknown. We are protected from the fear of death. We are protected from hopelessness and cynicism that people experience when they don't know God and they believe that the world is a random place where stuff just happens and there's no point to it. The peace of God which is based on the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God and the love and caring of God says to us that this isn't all random and it is purposeful and there is a kind, loving, intelligent being who is at work even in our worst circumstances. That's phenomenal. That's how the peace of God protects and guards our hearts and our minds. Now there is a danger in taking any portion of scripture and turning it into a formula and I don't want to leave you with the impression that if you just plug in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that you're going to have a perfect peace and life will be rosy. Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. He had agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. His heart was deeply troubled within him before he ever got to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what it was to anticipate something really difficult and have trouble in his soul about it. He suffered, we suffer. This is especially true when we're going through some of the harder experiences of grief and loss that, uh, that many people, that we always go through this. We got a little bit of extra on top of that right now. But the emphasis on prayer spoken about in this passage is even more important when we're going through times like this. Yancey speaks about prayer as keeping company with God. In our hardest of times, this is the kind of prayer we need the most. 
we pour our hearts out, he listens. We cry ourselves dry. He sits with us. You don't know what to say. He says, it's okay. I understand. Don't worry. I get it. Now, if you're in a particularly hard spot today, dealing with loss or anxiety, go to your compassionate high priest. Tell him all about it. Or just sit with him in silence, knowing that he understands and is present with you. This is your pathway to peace, even if it takes a while to get there. For the rest of us who are not dealing with anything that serious today, don't forget to go to him with all of your cares. Engage him in all kinds of prayer. Bring your requests. Be thankful. Enjoy the peace of God and the protection that this brings to your heart and to your mind. We're told a story in Matthew chapter 8 about Jesus getting into a boat and his disciples get into the boat with them and they're going to head across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. The Sea of Galilee is big. I don't know if anybody been there. Yeah, some of you have been there. It's, it's big. Like, like it's really hard to see across it. They get in the boat, they start across, and a storm arises. And the disciples believe that they are going to die. Now, at least a few of these guys were career fishermen from families of fishermen who had been fishing the Sea of Galilee probably for generations. They knew this sea. They knew what it was like. They knew the quirks of its weather and so forth. And they, they had probably ridden out a few storms in their day. They knew what it was like. This was not the reaction of some squeamish, gee, I really don't want to go in the water, where's my life preserver kind of guys, okay? These are guys who were, you know, rough and tumble, really familiar with it, didn't freak out because, like, this is business as usual. But they thought they were going to die, so I don't know what this storm was like. But it must have been impressive. They wake up Jesus and they say, we're dying, we're going to die. Jesus, of course, is sleeping. (laughs) That must have been a little bit weird too. They wake him up and he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He rises up, he rebukes the wind and the seas and there's a great calm. And the men marveled saying, who is this guy? What sort of man is this? See, they were still getting that figured out. We don't see Jesus telling the disciples in this story that they're sinful and they need to knock it off. He isn't harsh with them. He doesn't even give them a sermon. He just gets up and he calms the sea. It's as if to say, you don't really need to be worried about this because I'm with you. Remember, I'm with you. Sometimes less is more. His calming the wind and then not giving the sermon was probably the best sermon. 
When it comes to anxiety, the focus of the Bible is not on the fact that you are in a boat and not on the fact that there's a storm. The focus of the Bible is on the fact that Jesus is in the boat with you. So remember, in all prayer, with supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which is crazy, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. And I'm so glad you know us. You know what it is to be us. You know what it is to have flesh and bones and blood. You know what it is to walk this earth and to suffer various kinds of evils in this fallen world. We're so grateful that when we come to you, we can come to you with the knowledge that you understand us and you are compassionate. You, you sympathize with our weakness because you were tempted in all the same ways we are You were made in every respect like your brethren. You are so approachable, and we love you so much for that. I just pray for all my brothers and sisters here this morning that you will encourage them to come to you, that they will feel that pull from you, Holy Spirit, and that when they come, they will bring whatever is on their minds to you, and that they will experience your peace. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for your word. May you bless it to us. May it burrow its way into our minds and reverberate as we go throughout this week. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.